Hello. Welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Ross. And I am Gordon. And today, what are we doing today, Gordon? Um, I don't know. I think you said something about doing something with long lenses. So. Oh, yes. Long lenses. I like long lenses. They're heavy. So they? They're, they're a lot of money. That's true. But I can make photos with them that I could not make any other way. So it seems, because well, I have seen you sticking your le that lens out of the car window. I, I have. With some difficulty, I must have. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, when working in an average-sized car, swinging around a 500 F4 on a grip, on a full-frame camera, may require gymnastics, that well, older, older, less flexible, <laughs> heavy people can't do. Gordon is not being dis disrespectful. He's being accurate. <laughs> but I also can't fly across valleys or chasms or crevices. And for those nope. who remember the 60s, <clears throat> there's pumas in the crevices. Yes, there is. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, <clears throat> then you need to look up reruns of Tommy and Dickie Smothers. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we're going to talk about long lenses. So, first off, what do we mean by a long lens? Well, that's a good question, and I looked up some of that today, and it's interesting how many people don't have a good definition of it. Okay. Why don't you give us a good definition of it? Well, I'll give you my definition of it. I don't That'll know if good. it's a good definition. But apparently two factors come into play when you're discussing a long lens. Uh, the first of them, which everybody is familiar with, is the focal length of the lens. And the second component, which less people know about, but which you talk about a lot, is the field of view or the angle of view. Yeah. And the reason that I talk about angle of view is we could buy a lens labeled 100 to 400. We could use that lens on a full-frame camera. We could use that lens on a crop sensor camera. The angle of view is different. Mm -hmm. So I tend to focus on angle of view. Right. How much of the field are we actually going to be able to see? Right. Um, you can do whatever you want. You know, call it whatever you want. Sure. So the angle of view, the, the people that uh, they, who are writing about it, they assume you know what an angle of view means. And I think most, many people, I won't say most people, Perhaps don't. And as far as I can put it together, so a long focal length lens is a lens where the focal length is long enough to reduce the angle of view or the amount of the image that comes into your peripheral vision that is less than what your eyes see normally. Yeah, that's a very good definition. I mean, I mean, if we think about this in the in a grade school level, I think from a grade school perspective, we've all played with those telescopes, you know, that existed when we were kids. Mm -hmm. Telescopes are just a special kind of long focal length lens. Yep, it's got a very narrow angle of view, and it makes far stuff look like it's closer. And that's probably the easiest way to describe a narrow angle of view or long focal length lens using this highly technical terminology 
far stuff looks bigger. Right. And that's a good thing because we may not be able to get to the position with a more traditional lens where we can fill the frame with the subject. You and I both uh, have a friend who likes doing photographs of the moon. Yep. Despite his diligence, he's not getting any closer to it. Nope. <clears throat> so he goes to a long focal length lens and he makes wonderful moon photographs. Yep. And that's true for all of us. You're a bird photographer. Yep. Them birds may not like you being too close. They don't like me too being close. Um, <clears throat> they definitely don't like me being too close. Because uh, they see me and they think, that big bastard's going to eat me. <laughs> so, which could be true. But I need a lot of them. Or a really big. Turkeys, beware. But I think that's the whole point, right? Yes. To be able to make an image of something that you can't get close to and not have it look like it's 300 feet or 100 miles or a million miles away. Right. It doesn't really get any simpler than that. But when we look at long focal length lenses... There are typically two methodologies that makers deliver them to us. And it really often sets a difference, not in terms of functionality, but in terms of price. Mm -hmm. Most common is the zoom it's lens, zoom right? Lens. Now, why are zooms so popular? Well, um, generally, I think they're somewhat cheaper. Yeah, often they are. Um, their functionality is awesome because you can stand in one place and you can compose the photograph however you wish without having to move around or get any closer. Uh, you can cut out all kinds of things and back off and put in all kinds of things. But it's mainly ease of use. And that's, that's a great value proposition. It is. Because what a zoom is actually giving us is in a single product, <clears throat> it's giving us variable focal length, and that means variable angle of view. Yes. In one lens. And so from a convenience perspective, a weight perspective, there can be a huge amount of value in that. Now, when we go to a fixed focal length lens, what the market now calls primes, that means the focal length or angle of view doesn't change, we tend to find ourselves spending more money. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is typically lens speed, the maximum aperture that the lens can deliver. So if we look, for example, at something in the 400 millimeter range, that's pretty popular working range, no matter what frame camera you're working on. If we look at the maximum aperture for some, a zoom that goes to 400, we're probably going to find that the maximum aperture down at, let's use a 100, 400, for example, down at 100 mil is about f4.5. Mm -hmm. By the time it gets to 400, it is probably much smaller, f6.3, maybe even f8. Yep. That's not necessarily a problem. Unless you're looking for shallower depth of field or higher shutter speeds in a given lighting condition. Right. 
to get a larger maximum aperture, Zoom's struggle from a perspective of physics and lens architecture to make that happen. You know, Sigma has a 200 to 500 f2.8 zoom lens. Uh, it weighs, if I remember correctly, about 50 pounds plus 30 pounds for the wooden tripod and costs about $22,000. Back when there was a television show on local cable, we actually had one uh, for demonstration purposes and nobody understood it. And that's crazy. Nobody's carrying that into the field. But you could carry a 500 F4 yep. into the field. You could carry a 400-2.8 out onto the football field. Very common football lens. Possibly the most popular sports lens. If you've got to go really long, like 800 millimeters, and we know nature photographer Moose Peterson does this, his 800 mil is his, he'll call it his standard lens. It's the one he uses most of, most of all. We may or may not see zooms that go out with that kind of reach, but even an 800 at f5.6, its maximum aperture, we're talking, still talking about a lens that's $20,000. Right. So a zoom that went to 800 might cost less, but it would probably be really dark. Yep. Meaning you'd be shooting at very high ISOs um, or slower shutter speeds. So we talk about the weight and the dimensions, but one of the things that I think confuses people is also this term telephoto. Yes. So from your perspective, what does that mean? Uh, telephoto, is, I, I believe, basically means a telescope and a piece of photographic equipment. That is bang on accurate. Tele means to bring closer. Right. Telegram, telephone. It, it all comes from the same, uh, you know, etymology on the uh, of the word development. But are all zooms telephotos? Uh, no, all zooms are not necessarily telephotos, and all photos are not. Uh, not the other thing. <laughs> yeah, all telephotos aren't necessarily zooms. Right. Right. So a five hundred f four fixed focal length lens is not a zoom. But it is, but a, it is telephoto. a telephoto. Yep. But you've got a great little wide-angle zoom that you use all the time. Yep. It's a, well, it's a 7 to seven to 14, which translates in real terms into 14. It's, it's, it's the standard 14 to 28 kind of, kind right. of lens. That's a wide-angle, though. But it's a wide-angle, but you can change the focal length. Right. So whatever you can change the focal length on becomes a zoom. So when we think about these long lenses, it's interesting the level of frustration that some people get because of either misinformation or some bad advice. You know, back when I was younger and the dinosaurs roamed the earth, we had a simple rule that your minimum shutter speed was one over the focal length. Now, this was obviously full frame 35 negative right but it was pretty reasonable a reasonable place to you to work right but with zooms it confuses people because if i have a one to 400 zoom 
what should my minimum shutter speed be? Yes, and they tend to modify their shutter speed depending on what their degree of zooming is at a point in time. And that, that's very common. Has the weight of the lens changed? Weight of the lens hasn't changed any. Mechanics of the lens haven't changed any. So the first bit of guidance we would suggest is it's always one over the maximum yes. focal yes. length. Mm -hmm. Now that is for full frame. Yep. But what if your crop sensor, which is a 1.5 crop factor, if we think Nikon, 1.6 if we think Canon. Right. So my 400 multiplied by 1.5 mm -hmm. provides the angle of view, comparative angle of view of a 600. 600. So my shutter speed should be? One over 600. One over 600. Right. Now let's use, you're a huge proponent of micro four thirds, and you convince me more every day as I get older, that that is probably where I need to go to. What's the longest focal length lens you have? Uh, I have a 300, which translates into a 600. Right, so it's actually two times. Two times. So since it's two times, what should be your hand-holdable shutter speed for that One lens? One over 600. One over 600. When we think it through that way, it all just makes sense. Yep. Unfortunately, nice people, they go out and they'll get a lens and they'll ask at the camera store. We're sadly, because of the nature of retail, last week that person may have been selling dishwashers or lingerie. Not that I've seen this personally. Not that I actually worked in that store once. Uh, so the information is a little confusing, and there's certainly every opinion known to mankind on the internet. Right. And I know you want to talk about something later on uh, about stabilization. Yep. And that's a that's a whole new kettle of anchovies that have been sitting in the sun for three weeks. But it is, but something that needs to be. Not in maybe in depth, but uh, certainly touched on, I believe. I think you're right. So if I'm using that long lens, like physically long lens, right. what's happening to me as the photographer? What's one physic fact that I can't fight? I'm getting tired. I'm getting tired. What happens when you get tired? My hand shakes, my knees shake. Yeah, we're, hu shake. we're human, our bodies <laughs> shake. And we may start to feel some pain. Yep. And why is that? Because we're holding a great big weight out in front of the body. Yep. If we've got a good grip on our camera, our elbows are in tight, we've got our hands in tight, we've got a three-point of contact with the camera, but where's the front of that lens element? Right in the front, hanging down, or starting to wiggle anyway. Right, and it's going to wave, waver. So what happens... When I've got a smaller angle of view, and I've got lens movement. Mm -hmm. You've got a little bit of movement at your lens. You've got a lot of movement on the image. Right. And this is why we encourage higher shutter speeds for handheld, or as, you're, as you've mentioned, some form of stabilization that we're going to talk about a bit later on. Yep. Because the fact is, we are not rigid. We may not be mostly bags of mostly water, but fact is, our, we move. 
And in fact, for all of us, we have a resting heart rate. Mm -hmm. So we have a vibration frequency that's moving through our fingers because we've got pulse. And having a pulse is... It's generally a good thing. Generally, well, you're a doctor, so you would say that. Yes, it's a good thing to have a pulse. I never argue with a medical professional on these subjects. Now, but as that movement, you said it's going to increase image blur. Yep. Because that front of the lens is moving, right? Yep. You may think you got a great grip on the camera, but is that true? Uh, you may have, but you, you have a good grip on the camera, but you're not stopping the end of it from moving. So those little vibrations? Are big vibrations. Are big vibrations. And not necessarily good ones. Right. So what do we do to help people be more successful when they're photographing with a long lens? Well, the first thing I would say is uh, get used to the idea of using a faster shutter speed. Uh, Second thing is uh, rethink the way you're holding that camera. Yes. Now, you have shown me on occasion that... You hold it more like a rifle. You've got your hand cradling the front end of the lens, and that arm is stuck into some part of your body. Yeah, that's true. And and I do take that approach because I have the good fortune to have been trained as a precision shooter. Right. Uh, pistol and rifle. Right. And that works. And, but I have to admit yeah. it does work because I notice with myself <clears throat> that when that my right hand was squeezing the camera good and tight to keep it steady. And it took me a long time and a lot of your lectures before I realized that right hand shouldn't be doing anything. And and that's absolutely true. What we want is very fine muscle control in our shutter finger. Yes. We don't want to be punching or stabbing the button. Correct. And if we're full on crush gripping the camera with our right hand we don't have any fine motor control no so use the offhand and in the world of cameras there is no such thing as the left-handed camera right your left hand is the support hand that's where all the strength and the work gets done yep you also talked about the arm having a point of contact yep either with the body or some other something else something else um the general guidance on this is if your elbows are flying free. You're moving. You're moving. So get those elbows in tight, mm-hmm. both sides. Mm-hmm. And if that's not possible, put the left elbow on a pad yep. resting on something that isn't moving. Because mm-hmm. that's what you would do with a rifle. Yep. And if you take that approach from an uh, uh, I tell you, anatomical perspective, it just makes sense. Yes. You want to create a bone bridge. Yes. Between the lens and its point of support. Yep. Be that your rib cage, be that a table, be whatever it is. Um, how you. And then st- there's your feet. Well, then there's your feet. Man, has this one ever been exhausted in every possible way? wrong yep 
so let's just use again. Let's go back to simple physics. Okay. Where's your center of gravity? Uh, coming right down through your spine and down to the ground. Right. It is. Do you have one leg? Not recently. Correct. And for those who do, they're going to take a different approach anyway. Yes. And fake out a second leg. Right. Best position? Feet shoulder width apart. Yep. Toes parallel yep. to your chest. Yep. Not one foot forward and one foot back. You basically want to be making an isosceles triangle. Yep. With your body. And to a point that you've made um, on many times, what happens when you lock a joint? Uh, if you lock it too tight, uh, well, it's the same thing. You've got the muscle mass uh, pulling on it, and you're, you're, you're generating vibration. And you're also generating fatigue. Fatigue, for sure. So your le knees should not be locked. Correct. Um, and I don't mean Tigger the Bouncy Tiger unlocked, but not, not locked you know, fully open. Right. You actually want to let, if, if I can get philosophical for a moment, when you squeeze the shutter, you want that click, the vibration from the click, to pass through your body, mm -hmm. through your center of gravity, through your legs, right into the ground. Right. So you absorb none of the vibration. You're simply a transit for that. Right. Now we're the for we're very fortunate that our cameras don't generate a lot of force back on us when we're making a photograph. But this principle of transfer of energy is applied by professional shooters all the time. Right. Otherwise, they say, well, you can't, I'll manage the recoil. No, you won't. No. It's not possible. But what you can do is you can facilitate transfer of energy. Okay. So and again. The point that you raised there as well, um, uh, I, I've seen some people with using what we will call a fencing stance, if you wish, one, one leg in far in front, the other other leg back, and you're sh sh shuffling backwards and forwards in that position. That's great for fencing. Oh, it's awesome for fencing. It's not so good for putting up a, a, a solid stance, though. No, not at all. And in fact, I think that if we were to consult martial expert, martial uh, arts I was experts, yes. we're probably thinking more. It's more of a isosceles or a horse type of stance. Yes, as being a very stable one. It may not be your best defensive stance. Correct. But the camera isn't fighting with you. Right. You know, in, in competitive pistol shooting, we learned for a long time that we wanted to adopt the weaver stance, a bladed position. The body is tilted towards tilted. Okay. the target. It's not stable. Right. It makes you a smaller target, a <laughs> very good thing in a hostile situation. Yep but we're not in a hostile situation. Be, per be perpendicular to where your subject is. Don't be twisting at the waist. Don't be torquing your knees. It's just tiring. It makes you sore. Yeah, I, th I think this, these points are were well made and needed to be gone over again because I, they're very easy to forget and they're very easy to overlook. Well, sometimes we get excited by the subject, <clears throat> right? Yes. And I don't know what's happened to me. I see something that I've never seen before. 
I happened to be in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. with a camera and my pulse rate goes up. Mm-hmm. I get a little bit of adrenaline dump yep. and I start to breathe quickly. Mm-hmm. Rapid breathing is the enemy of the shooter mm-hmm. and it's the enemy of the photographer working with long lenses. Yep. So you brought up earlier the criticality of breathing control. Yes. How would you counsel people to, they find themselves in an exciting shooting situation? Just Is there a way to get your breath under control pretty just quickly? Just force yourself to slow down and... Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are always all sorts of ways of doing it, but just breathe, slow down, slowly in, slowly out, until your target stops moving around in front of you. Breathe from the diagra- diaphragm. diaphragm. Three deep, smooth breaths. You'd be surprised how fast you can go from jerky to stable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, there's the other one that you and I have talked about, and we've talked about it at a camera club, and I've done all kinds of lectures on, and that's shutter release. Yes. So you've worked with a lot of photographers. Yep. Do you ever find folks are really mismanaging their shutter release? <coughs> yes, um, a, lo- a lot of them. Um, the temptation is, I've got a long lens, I'm trying to shoot something that's moving, i got to stab this shutter, this button as fast as we can to get as many shots as we can. And, and no, they're all going to be blurred. They are. So, <clears throat> because the faster and that we move our finger, the more we hit the camera. Yeah. And the harder we hit the camera, the more vibration we're going to get. Yes. That's just basic physics. Yep. So, if you think about it in terms of words, because most folks understand words. Mm-hmm. We don't want to tap the, the shutter release. Sure, that's a good word. We don't want to press the shutter release. Yep. We want to squeeze, squeeze it gently. Now, some folks, again, like Moose Peterson, they've got a mechanism they call rolling the shutter. Right. And that works really well for some people. And if it works for you, that's awesome. It doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. I use a simpler method. I let my finger ride across the shutter button and when I tense the muscles in the back of my right hand, that's enough. Right. And that will cause the shutter to go off. And if I watch my finger, and because I'm a dork, I've actually practiced this sitting alone on the couch with the, you know, no card in the camera. So I don't care about wasting all that digital space. Camera on full burst. Right. And I want to see if I can make it fire and not see my finger move at all. Right. Now, that does take practice. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't take a lot of practice. It's not hard. And so the the smoother your squeeze, the less shake you're going to get. Yep. It's those micro vibrations you talked about just as if I've got this giant lens hanging out in front of me that we want to minimize. Right. Um, by the way, do any of these elements of stance, breathing, or shutter release not apply to any other lens? Absolutely not. It applies to everything. It does. So it's not just, oh, I'm shooting the long lens, I better do these things. No, this should be a standard practice. 
It, it, I agree. So we've talked about the anatomical constraints. We've talked about the reality of physics. Yes. And gravity. Yes. We've talked about the relationship handheld from shutter speed to effective fog length or angle of view. Right. Is there anything else in the camera that we can think about? Oh, yeah, there are a whole bunch of things in the camera that are designed to give you a blurred image. Okay, like your what? Your shutter, your shutter clicks. Your, your, if you're shooting with the DSLR, your mirror goes up and down. Um, and we talked about the shutter speed already, so that's... Uh, now, in, so in modern basically cameras, those, those three things. But in modern cameras, there's the fourth thing. Ah, yes. There's that you have that I don't have. Yes, and that's the electronic shutter. So maybe talk folks through that. Okay. So the electronic shutter, as far as I can understand it, is particularly in mirrorless cameras, which have a big advantage. The sensor is always exposed. There's no mirror in the way. And the shutter can either be mechanical or it can be a function of the powering up of the sensor. So there's an electronic burst that goes through the sensor. It charges it, activates it, whatever sensors do. And then it stops. And it's incredibly fast. It can be a lot faster than mechanical. And nothing moves. So you've got essentially a non-vibrating shutter release. Right. And in most cases, that can be really, really helpful. Yes. It's a good thing. You'll, you know, you're going to read articles on the internet about, well, I got tearing when I shot with my electronic shutter. That's got nothing to do with stills. No. Tearing uh, is a video, is a video problem. Okay. Didn't Be know about that. Because but. how the, it's how, and it's really about how the sensor scans. Uh, yes. That a mechanical <clears throat> shutter alleviates because it's blocking that. Right. No, the, the Olympus people, and, and I don't know about others, um, but they have come up with uh, a hybrid system. Yep. Whereby the shutter opening is electronic, the shutter closing is mechanical, mm -hmm. and they call it an anti-static system. So when the shutter opens, there is no vibration, and the only time you get vibration is after the action is over, right. when the shutter closes. When the shutter closes. And that has become uh, my primary and sometimes only means of firing the shutter. And does it work so for you? It works perfectly. There's no reason to use it any other form that I can see. So I have a colleague... Uh, out of the UK, his name is Greg Wall, and I believe he said that the Panasonic Lumix or the Panasonic cameras yes. mm -hmm. have the same functionality, okay. being micro four thirds, and uh, 
it amongst other things that you and I talked about offline, like the the pro mode uh, that your Olympus brings. Oh, yes. There's some real advantages to that. Yes. So it may what Gordon is talking about with that hybrid electromechanical shutter. It's probably not just Olympus. How do you find out? Check your camera manual. But it's going to be a mirrorless camera. Yes. Because you're not going to find that in a DSLR. Now, you talked about mirror movements. Now, you never have a mirror in a mirrorless camera. Nope. Hence the name. Mirrorless. But in DSLRs, we have a mirror. Yep. And that mirror has to move out of the way really fast. Yep. So the shutter can open and close. And when the shutter is closed, the mirror can take its own sweet time to fall back down. Yep. Well, we knew back in the days of film that if we were working with a really small angle of view, like macro, mm-hmm. mirror slap, the mirror going up, yep. would generate vibration, which would cause micro blur. Yep. That's why the pro cameras back since the film days had something called mirror up. Okay. Sometimes referred to as mop. Mop. Mirror lockup. Right. Because it locks the mirror in the up position. Yep. Now, that's tough for a DSLR because what can you see through the viewfinder when the mirror's up? Uh, Nothing. Nothing at all. However, if you're working something like close-up or macro work. Yes. Or you're working and it's, you know, a bird in its nest, and you've got it framed to allow for a little movement, mirror up may make the difference between blur and not blur. Yes. There's another characteristic that folks might want to think about. We know that there are sensors with different levels of megapixel count. Yes. So as the megapixel count goes up, what happens to the size of the individual pixels? It's smaller. They go down. And I have, I guess on the table over there, a Canon 5DS. That's a fairly older camera now, Mm -hmm. but it works. But it's a 50 megapixel sensor. Oops. When I first got it, I thought I'd lost my ability to hold the camera. Because I was seeing micro shake. Right. And what I established after doing isolation work, basically putting the camera on a tripod with a sandbag on concrete in a basement, <coughs> that at shutter speeds by default, below a 60th of a second, I was getting micro shake as a result of mirror slap. Okay. That was not pleasing. What I also found, though, is there was an ability to program a delay okay. between when the mirror went up and when the shutter opened. And we're talking microseconds. We're not missing a shot. Right. By extending that delay, mirror, mirror shock problem gone. Now, of course, that's not going to impact anybody 
who's buying into current cameras. Right. Because current cameras are all mirrorless. Yep. The mirror smack problem is one that was that is unlikely to be reintroduced. But because we all have, or not all, but many of us still have perfectly functional DSLR cameras. Mm-hmm. Perhaps DSLR, perhaps DSLR cameras with high megapixel counts, like the Canon 5D S, like the Nikon D850. Right. Maybe just program a little bit more delay right. and eliminate that potential problem. Right. Which takes us to the topic of stabilization. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. If anything was mismarketed, this is it. Now, on your Olympus, do you have stabilization? Oh, yeah. What kind of stabilization? Well, I have, uh, generally, I have stabilization in the lens. And I have stabilization in the camera body. Awesome. And I believe the lens takes precedence over camera body, if I'm not mistaken. And so in the camera body, they claim five stops of stabilization, of shutter speed, if you wish. Yeah. And uh, I believe the lens stabilizers... Um, maybe another two stops. So right. in total, they're claiming seven stops that you can reduce your shutter speed by. And that would sound amazing, right? It sounds that way. I mean, think about it. So let's suppose that you were, your light meter tells you without any stabilization that, you know, the shutter speed you need is a 60th of a second. But if I could get that much stabilization, it would be like I was shooting at 60 to 125 is one, to 250 is two, mm-hmm. 500 is three, mm-hmm. to 1,000 is four, mm-hmm. to 2,000 is five, to 4,000 is six, to 8,000 is seven. So I would have the stability of using a shutter speed of like one eight thousandth of a second, even though I'm shooting at a sixtieth. Mm-hmm. That would be pretty amazing. I wonder what frequencies those stabilization tools work at. This I don't know. <clears throat> don't feel bad. Not Nobody right. does. Because it's undocumented. Okay. Except in the case of lens stabilization, Canon Professional Services produced an excellent document that you will never find because it tells the truth about image stabilization in lens. Right. And that in lens stabilization uses a series of micromotors. They have a response time. Right. And they are super effective when the vibration frequency is less than three hertz three vibrations per second or more than 10,000 hertz, 10,000 vibrations per second. Right. So... That leaves the whole mid-range... Where it's not making a whole lot of difference. Right. It's true. So I had the opportunity to test this theory. 
because I was once in Las Vegas for Photoshop World and had arrived a day early and decided that, yeah, it was worth my while to spend $600 on a helicopter trip to the Grand Canyon. Okay. Yep. Uh, and it was an amazing event. I'm still not sure it was worth 600 bucks. But what I discovered is when shooting from the helicopter, stabilization on or off made a massive difference. Right. Because the vibration frequency was so high. Right. I've also found it very useful for astronomical shots. Right. Right? Where I'm not necessarily on a tripod, but I'm hand-holding the moon. Right. But I want to let it get down to a slower speed. Oh, yes. Stabilization, very valuable. Okay. So I'm not saying lens stabilization, in-lens stabilization is a bad thing. But it's important to know where it works best. Sure. And where it's not going to make any difference at all. Right. Now, that's not something you're going to learn in any camera shop. No, you're not going to get it from the manual either. And you're not going to get it from the manual. It's a great tool. But it may not be everything you think it is. <coughs> so, know that. Now, very often as we go to slower shutter speeds we're going to use some form of stabilization mm -hmm. that is physical. Yes. Tripod. Yep. So a question that's frequently asked is, should I leave my lens image stabilization on when I'm on a tripod? The answer is usually yes. And it varies by manufacturer. Right. Nikon is quite explicit, and so is Canon. If the camera is on a tripod, turn stabilization in the lens off. Okay. Some manufacturers don't say anything at all. And the reason for this is that the mechanism for in-lens stabilization is that it's looking for movement. Okay. Those micro motors are never died, are never stopped. And they may, in the absence of motion, artificially create motion. So my guidance, in general, is if the camera's on a tripod, no need to use in-lens stabilization. Right. But then we come to the other thing. The in-body stabilization. In-body stabilization. Multi-axis in-body stabilization. Five-axis body Five-axis. Four-axis. I live in a three-dimensional world. The five-axis thing I'm still struggling with. No, I'm... <laughs> I only got three dimensions here, guys. And I'm not sure it's moving through time, but it might be. So the idea here is not that the camera moves, it's that the sensor is actually moving. Yep. To counter vibration. Yep. I've never seen any documentation that says what its operational frequency range is. Don't know. No. No idea. In my limited use of cameras with in-body stabilization, and my limited use is Sony, Nikon, and Olympus, all mirrorless products, I saw no negative impact from having in-body stabilization turned on all the time. Whether I, I was on a tripod or not, regardless of shutter speed, 
I never saw a downside. I I have to it I have to agree with you, um, mostly because I forget I shoot a lot on the tripod and I forget to turn it off. Yeah, and uh, so I think it's a great function because we don't have to worry about it. And the cam- cameras frequently come with an uh, with an auto on or off, uh, and it. Depending on the camera, it will decide which direction you're having motion in, mm-hmm. and somehow will adjust for the opposite one. Right. So well, if it knows there's a, gy- there's a gyroscope. Yeah. So if it knows you're panning, then it won't take the horizontal uh, stabilization off. It'll correct for the vertical stabilization yeah and 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 this is not untrue as well for some narrow angle of view longer focal length lens stable in lens stabilizations as well so for example on my canon 300 my 400 and my 500 they've all got in lens stabilization but they've got it in two modes right one where it stabilizes in both variants, both directions, up and down, side to side, and one where it only stabilizes in the vertical axis. Right. Because I might be photographing sports. Right. More horses or racing cars or whatever, something whatever, moving something that's going horizontally across the, uh, across the frame. And, yeah, that's pretty useful because I don't want to f- the camera to be fighting with what I'm trying to do. Right. So if the camera can determine that based on gyros, hey, the guy is actually trying to move. Yep. Don't stabilize this, then that's a bonus. That's a that, benefit. That is a bonus, sure. Absolutely. Um, I would like to someday learn about where the frequency response is on in-body stabilization. But I'm not sure. I don't believe I'm ever going to hear that from the manufacturer because it's not in their best interest to tell me it's not as good as they would like me to believe. Right. And I don't see the big test houses having the time or the wherewithal anymore to go find out. Or the, or the interest. Or perhaps the interest. You know, if, if so my take on in-body is if you've got it, use it. Now. But don't rely on it exclusively. Well, and that's my final point, because as you know, I did shoot the first two versions of the OMD EM1, yep. the Mark One and the Mark II, yep. both of which had in-body stabilization. Mm-hmm. Did I ever get five stops of stabilization? I not a think, chance. Yeah, not a chance, but you, it just does what it's going to do. It does what it's going to do. You know, in theory, then, I should have been able to handheld at a quarter of a second because yep. fi- five stops would have made it eight, yep. 15, 30, yep. 60, like 125th of a second. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. Did not work. I got camera shake. Now, did I get it as bad as I would have gotten without in-body stabilization shooting at an eighth of a second? I don't know, because I didn't make that experiment. Sure. So maybe it improved things, but I would be cautiously optimistic. And if it's, a, if it's the only chance you're going to get for that shot? Take the shot. Don't don't go well. It won't work, so I won't bother. Yep. 
that's uh, that's not good guidance. <clears throat> now, we've got other stabilization op- options available to us. Right. And in the context of that narrow angle of view, what are the options that you would think about? Um, well, there's a cushion. Sure. And those little $5 neck cushions that you can get from the dollar store, they work really good. Yeah. And they're a lot easier to find than bean bags. Yes. Because and a lot cheaper. Because back in the day, shooting from a car, you used to roll the window down part way, put a bean yep. bag over it, and use the bean bag as a rest. Yep. Try to find a bean bag today. But those little neck cushions, they Looks work a charm. Looks good. They're a great little brace. But that aside, then uh, then you get into the context of some form of physical stability. Well, like Which what? Generally be something with three legs or a flat bottom. Three legs? You want to use more? Well, <laughs> isn't... isn't the triangle, the most stable that geometric is object? Yes, is it? Yeah, it is. Wait, we have something that sounds like tri. We do. And it's, uh, it's got something that sounds like legs, too. Yes, pod. Ah, that one. That one, tripod. Should you use a tripod with a long lens? If you don't, you need your head examined. Yeah, like, why not? Yeah. Why get tired? Why shake the thing? when you've just spent money to get the thing that stops you from doing those things. I just don't get it. Now, what I do see, and I see happened, well, I saw it happen regularly in a camera shop. How much is, a, is your camera body? Uh, about two grand. About two grand. And that long lens you've got, how much is that? Yeah, about the same. Okay. So that's a pretty significant investment of your money, right? You. So why would anybody spending that much money on a camera spend $129 on a tripod? Um, well, they probably wouldn't. They're probably looking for something that's less than $129. Oh, yes, you're right. They are. How's that going to work out? Well, having... Uh, done a fair amount of shooting with the gentleman who did just that uh, not so good what happened no. a it shakes b it falls over he watched his camera bounce across the floor oh that sounds bad expensive yeah and and, and when i say bad i mean like ghostbusters crossing <laughs> the streams bad yes a tripod has a weight capacity. Yep. I'm one of those cheap tripods. Have you ever seen a weight capacity listed? No. Nope. Nope. How much weight capacity should you look for? Well, uh, probably twice what your camera weighs. Twice what your camera and the lens weighs. That's exactly the right place to start. And if it doesn't warrant that, it's the wrong leg set. Yes. But there's more to it. There's a headset. There's a head. We hope. And if there's a head, 
Should the head have a weight capacity? It should. Why? Because the head bone's connected to the leg bone? Yeah, the head bone is connected to the leg bone. And what is the, what is the purpose of a tripod head? Uh, to hold the camera up. And it's the only thing holding the camera up after the legs. But can I move the head? It's mobile, but it has to be able to lock into place. Oh, wait. But what if my locks aren't strong enough to hold the weight of my camera? Then you've got the wrong head. You've got the wrong head. Again, it comes down to thinking logically. If you're looking for great stability with long focal length lenses, narrow angle of view lenses, are you going to get by successfully with a cheap-ass tripod? No. No. Absolutely not. Now, you and I both heard from people, well, I don't want to carry the tripod. It's too heavy. Yep. What tripods are they talking about? Uh, I don't, I don't know because there are not very many that are that heavy right now. But they're either talking a heavy, either wooden tripod, or yes. a metallic tripod of some variety that isn't aluminum. Yeah, or even aluminum. You know, I've got a Manfrotto aluminum tripod down in the studio. It weighs thirty pounds. You know yeah. how much it comes out of the studio? Never. <laughs> it's planted to the floor like it's in a gravity well. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's not useful for the field. Now, what do you use in the field? Um, I have, well, I have a couple, depending on what I'm planning on shooting. If I'm planning on using long lens for birds where I'm going to have to have a lot of motion going on, then I use a Manfrotto, which is an aluminum tripod, but it weighs about even that it weighs in at five pounds and I find that maybe uncomfortable to carry for a long period of time right uh, failing which um, I will use a carbon fiber tri tripod mm -hmm. which is uh, a lot easier to, uh, to move around and it's about um, two and a half pounds less than that right and because I shoot with Olympus, which is not a heavy camera, and if I'm not planning on doing the things I've already said, then I do use another aluminum tripod, which looks like it should be very unstable because it looks skinny, but in fact it will hold up to 80 pounds. So there you go, you're solved. Yep. For myself, I have... Aluminum tripods that never leave the studio. Mm -hmm. And anything that goes in the field is carbon fiber. Yep. And I got a bunch of them. Yep. Now, one of the real challenges with carbon fiber, when I first got my very first carbon fiber tripod, was the price. Mm -hmm. A leg set for a travel mm -hmm. tripod. That would cost seven or $800. Mm -hmm. And if I wanted heavier legs, oh, it was well over a grand. Mm -hmm. Now, if I'm putting a $15,000 camera on that, $1,000 mm -hmm. is actually a pretty good bargain. Yep. Right? Because I should be thinking 20% of the value of the gear going into the tripod. Right. <clears throat> but can I buy 
decent carbon fiber now, today, 2021, for less than I could in 2011. Oh, absolutely. Um, the prices come down fairly dramatically. And uh, yes, yeah, you, you can. Uh, you, you can. Now, it may not be Githso. And it may not be. Most likely won't be Githso. And it won't be really right stuff. Nope. Two excellent tripods. I've owned them both. Yep. Highly recommended either way. But there are can there are carbon fiber tripods coming out of the Far East, where the leg sets are six-way wrap carbon fiber. Right. Are they as good, or is are the walls machined to the same tolerance as a? $1,200 really right stuff like that? No, well, they no, are not. But will they do what you expect it to do? Oh, well, they contain the weight that I want and deal with the vibration level that I have to deal with. Right. Yeah, they will. So I don't need to spend that kind of money anymore. I may choose to, but that's a personal choice. Right. I don't have to. Like 10 years ago, there was no other option. Mm-hmm. So today we have <coughs> options. And my guidance to anyone going out to get a tripod, make sure the leg set is carbon fiber. Right. And buy it a, with a little bit more capacity than you think you might use. Which is your heaviest camera setup. Your heaviest camera setup. Now, one of the things I noticed for photographers moving from DSLRs to mirrorless, some of those mirrorless cameras and lenses are bigger and heavier yes that, that i think that old uh, adage of oh go get a mirrorless it's so small and light and ah no no it's not it really in my experience it's not true unless <laughs> i drop in sensor size yes like i found the olympus was really easy to carry all day yep or but two bodies light two bodies with lenses on them yep it's not light but is it lighter than a pair of 1DXs? Yeah, it is. Well, they're both lighter than 1DX. <laughs> they are. And if that's a consideration for anybody, then you think about that. Because the BS that mirrorless micro four-thirds don't give you good quality images is a load of poop. Look at the photography of Mr. Scott Bourne mm-hmm. as a proof point yep. that this is complete crap. Or that... Projection is complete crap. So let's find the right tripod. And there are two kinds of heads that we deal with. Yep. The most common is the ball head. Yep. But there's another kind of head that some photographers, I'm looking at one, you're looking at one, prefer from when we're using really long lenses. Um, the, the gimbal is, uh, is one. Uh, the gimbal is the one. Is the one. Uh, I was thinking more in terms of there, there are fluid heads and stuff like that. But fluid I heads are marvelous for video. Not so good for... Doesn't make any difference at all because you're not panning the tripod right. in three dimensions right. as you are in a video shoot. Yep. Video tripods are a different game. Anyone who tells you that they're the same is either misinformed or trying to sell you something that's wrong. Right. So no, why do you I, use a gimbal? Sorry, go ahead. Why do you use a gimbal? 
<coughs> I use a gimbal because it's essentially what used to be a machine gun mount. Yeah. Because you can move it in a 180-degree plane, uh, let go of it, and it stays where you pointed it in the first place, or it should if you've set it up right. And that's the real challenge that folks have with gimbals. You have to balance it for the camera and the lens. Yes. Decide where the lens, and typically they're used with a lens that has its own foot. Yes. Rather than trying to put the body behind it, because the idea is to use the gimbal arm as a cradle. Yes. Just as if you were... Holding it with your arm. Crazy brave, holding out one finger and balancing the whole thing. That's really what the gimbal setup allows for. Mm -hmm. So I can put that 500, in my case, because it's what I have, with a two times converter and a 1DX2 on the back end. And I can set it up, mark on the lens foot where it goes on the the gimbal plate. And it's going to stay in position. Right. And if I tilt it up, It It stays in position. position. If I tilt down, it stays in position. And if I'm having to pan because I'm chasing something that's moving, photographing a running deer, for example, I can be in a very stable shooting position, and I'm using the gimbal, which is holding the camera and the lens in balance. No weight for me at all. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Once you've used a gimbal, you said, how did I do this without And so I would submit, as I think you would, that a gimbal can make a huge difference for the long lens photographer. Yep. Now again, back when I started, there weren't a lot of gimbal choices. There was Wimberley. Yep. And really right stuff. Yep. Both cost an arm and a leg. And they were about the same. Superb products. Oh, absolutely built to last but are there options well no there are now there are in fact i know of a canadian company that builds brilliant gimbal heads mm-hmm. that would be jobu that would be jobu and um i use one and i used the small one and i started using that when i was uh, shooting nikon and basically, I use it with my 200-500. Uh, so it's designed to take the weight. Right. Again, yeah. it's, a tr- it's a head that has the capacity for the camera-lens combination you're using on. Yep. I actually had one of those Jobu Smalls, too. And I sold it when I got my Really Right Stuff, partly to help fund the Really Right Stuff one. Right. And I miss it because it was so small and so compact and it would work with a full-size DSLR, not with a battery pack, but with a 100 to 400 zoom. Mm-hmm. It was a great choice. The lady who bought it from me uses it for bird photographies on her uh, photography on her deck. Right. And she's thrilled. A gimbal head with a long lens can take a lot of the strain off your body and give you better, sharper images more efficiently and the other nice thing about uh, was something like a jobu is you can 
Take the head off the tripod. Stick it in a camera bag. Just put a regular ball head on and see what you... If you're going to shoot landscapes, if you want to shoot, um, I don't know, something up in the top of a tree or something that's not going to move, and you just want to put a regular head on, sure, go for it. Yeah, I agree. But if it starts moving, you better get the gimbal back on fairly quickly, and you can without adding a whole lot of weight to it. I agree. Quick release plates are, are wonderful. Yep. Move a lever and change heads. Yep. Every one of my tripods is set up to do that. Now, up till now, we've talked about the long lens in the context of something that's far away mm-hmm. that we wanted to bring closer. Mm-hmm. Effective, reducing angle of view. Mm-hmm. Are there places to use a narrow angle of view, long focal length lenses, lens that is not something far away? Oh, yeah. So, I've got a use, you've got a use. What's your favorite use? Uh, I don't know about a favorite, but I shoot macro. Yeah. Because my 300 read 600 will focus at one and a half meters. So, that's pretty close. That's pretty close. In fact... At that distance, I may actually have to step back a bit because I may be filling the frame a bit too much. And with what size subject? Flower. With a flower. Or a praying mantis. Or a praying mantis. Because remember, as you said, it's effectively like a 600, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. So that makes it 12 times closer. Yep. Roughly than what your eye sees. Yep. That's brilliant. It's awesome. Uh, Use uh, of uh, long focal length lenses for close-up work. Yes. Not at the infinity position, but at their close focus position. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is a marvelous use. And uh, they talk about uh, micro thirds and... Uh, Absence of bokeh, and you know, when you get too much depth of field, not when you put a long lens on it. Right on. So you want to manipulate shallow depth of field? You don't have a choice. You put that lens on, you got no depth of field. Is when you focus really close. Yep. When your subject close to you. Yep. I, I, you know, I'm with you a hundred percent. My use case is. is as you know, I get the most charge out of photographing people. Right. Um, formal portraits, but also regular folks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of my most used lenses is my 70-200-2.8. Right. Because 200 at 2.8, mm-hmm. in close, mm-hmm. is super shallow depth of field. Mm-hmm. And it has a, still a nice effect on the human face. It is. In fact, I'd like less depth of field. Sometimes. Which is bad. Because Canon makes a 200mm f2. Mm. And 
as you know, one of my mentors is Joe McNally, who is a he Nikon is. shooter. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of his street <coughs> portrait work, he switched to a 200 F2. And now he's got nothing in the background. <laughs> he's got nothing in the background, and he doesn't have to be standing on top of his subject to get a really tight headshot. Right. You know, it's not the right lens for a full body shot. No. <laughs> unless you're standing far away. But then you lose the depth of field yeah. benefit. Yeah. But for portraiture, long lens can be really elegant. Yep. Now, I think my 400 at f4 had its close focus point. The depth of field is... Probably not a whole lot. Less than an to inch, quote, I would think. To quote Monty Python, wafer thin. <laughs> okay. It's wafer thin. And is it always the right look? No. No. But in the right context, you're never going to find that look anywhere else. Right. Now, can you use a long lens for landscapes? I do. Tell us more. Well... Uh, the conventional teaching is for landscapes you need to have a wide angle you need to take in this expansive view of things and uh, I went that route and I got an expansive view of where I couldn't see the detail of anything because it was somewhere over the horizon using a long lens uh, gets you over that but so it brings distant objects in close, but if you're going to use this technique, you have to be prepared to do one of two things. The first one is be prepared to isolate segments of the landscape that mm -hmm. you want to show. What's the story? Tell the story with the, that mountain peak that has one big boulder sitting on top of it. Yep, that's where you need that long lens. That's your and that's your story. That's your story. That's your compositional decision. Yep. But you and I both have a way to shoot a panoramic landscape. Then you shoot a panoramic with landscape. a long focal length lens. Yep. How do we do that? The same way you shoot any other panoramic, without. Yeah, there's no difference. There's really. no difference. You just you just see it bigger. Now, if I'm doing a horizontal panorama, and I think you do it the same way, yeah. I put the camera in the vertical orientation. Yes. So I'm taking tall, narrow slices. Yep. And I shoot them, and I leave a bit of overlap. Yep. I've actually got a head with little markers on my tripod, so I know right. how much to move it, how many virtual clicks. Right. And then I put those images together in the editing software of choice. Right. Works pretty you know, good. It's, so it's no, it's no different. It's Except no the thing difference. that you are pointing at is now bigger. Yeah, I can do that panorama of a mountain range Yep. without being in the foothills. Yep. Telephoto lenses for landscapes are brilliant. But you take a landscape class, nobody wants nobody, to talk no, about telephoto. Nobody wants to talk about it, no. No. We've had people that we know go on landscape classes and come back, I have to buy a 14. Hey, don't get yeah, me wrong. Not for that. I love <laughs> the 14 mil lens. 
but it's not my only choice for landscapes. Yeah. And I guess the, the other aspect of the landscape is that people's, uh, the um, prevailing uh, theory is that, well, you in a landscape, you want to be able to get from just beyond your feet to infinity, everything in focus. Okay, that's fine. But thanks to the magic of technology nowadays, you can focus track those images. Yeah. So you can put them. Uh, you might have to make a choice as to whether you're going to get a wide landscape or you're going to get a narrow escape, but in focus all the way from, well, pretty much right near your feet to infinity just by focus stacking the images. Yeah, now some cameras, I think yours does this, they'll actually f stack in camera, right? They will. Okay, I don't have a camera that does that, I don't think. Because how, what, what file format comes out of your camera if you do that? Um, well, if you choose to focus stack it in camera, it will shoot raw images and give you a JPEG coming out a high quality, full quality JPEG coming right. out of the camera. Do you still get the RAWs? But you get the RAWs. Okay, so, so if you wanted to stack them yourself, you, you still can. could. Sure. But you've got a JPEG to look at. Yep. Right there on the back of the camera yep. to tell you if you're getting what That's you already want. had all your modifications done to it. That sounds like a benefit to me. It is, because I've, tr I've tried it both ways. And I have to admit, I'm hard-pressed to tell the difference between where I've put the images together, uh, used the raw images in third-party software, and just taken the one that's come out of the camera and said, yeah, okay, good enough. I'll do a little tweaking on this, and it's... So you, it's as, awesome. the, you as the artist are happy with the results? Yeah, if you really want to get fancy, you can you can do it. You've got the raw images at your fingertips, but if you just want an image, you've got that at your fingertips too. And some of the, today's cameras, when you choose photo stacking, you set the, the far distance and the close distance, Yep. and they'll just do the shots. Yep. Doing the focus changes automatically. Yep. That's not something that I have the capability for, in any of the cameras that I own. Right. So if I choose to focus stack, I'm doing the refocusing. Right. I'm throwing the camera into manual focus mode yeah. and I'm turning the ring and I'm hoping I've got enough overlap. Right. Newer sounds simpler. I think it is. And we're going to find that in the newer mirrorless <coughs> cameras. Now, I know the Olympuses do it. I, I don't know about the others, though. I understand that Panasonic's do, and I have not spent any time on this subject when I was getting cameras for Eval. Right. None of the manufacturers are doing that anymore. So I don't have that hands-on experience I used to have. Um, but I don't recall it in either of the Nikon or Canon mirrorlesses that I did test. Now, that was some years ago, so... Right. I don't know what's current today. But I do know that even if your camera doesn't do photo stacking in camera, your software does. 
Yep. Because Photoshop's got photo stocking. Yep. Built right in, and it's pretty good. Yep. And if you want to get really anal about it, probably the wrong word. <laughs> really um, picky. Obsessive. <laughs> Obsessive compulsive disorder? What, me? My tool of preference is a product called Helicon Focus. Right. Yeah, it costs, I, I forget what it cost me. I get upgrades forever. And it does a beautiful job for, for, for photo focus stacking. Right. So there's lots of options available to you. I mean, if your new camera, you just, if, or if you're buying into a new camera and you like the concept, maybe that's something you look for. Mm. But if you've got a camera that doesn't do it in camera, that's okay. There are it's tools. Okay, and it's not that difficult. It's do. really not that difficult. It, it's more, more a mindset. Uh, if you put your camera on a tripod and you focus on the close point and then you just move it back ad nauseum, yeah. something is going to correct it in the processing. Well, certainly, and there's a, a great Canadian photographer who was best known initially for his photographs of snowflakes. Oh, yes. A fellow named Don Komarechka. And I got to watch Don do snowflake photographs. And he focus-stacked all of them. Right. And he just had the camera on full burst, and he was actually bobbing over the snowflake. Yep. Like he wasn't being o overly precise. He had practiced a lot, and he turned this <laughs> yes, into a yes, skill. That's the truth. He, he had the skill. But he could make these incredible focus-stack images. And yeah, you know, he might be going into the stack with 70 to 100 images, but they're freaking snowflakes. Yep. And... I think the best snowflake work I've ever seen. I, I, I think that's true. I've never seen anything like what he does. No. So, super talented guy, developed a method, taught all kinds of people how to do it. Yep. And not just snowflakes, works for macro work. Yeah. Well, um, works for anything. Yep. Focus stacking is an option. And if you've got that long telephoto lens, your concerns about narrow depth of field or shallow depth of field don't necessarily have to be there if your subject is not running away from you. Right. Like that mountain. Yep. <laughs> you know, I think there's a lot of value there. So folks, this has been the longest episode we've ever done. And we really appreciate your patience and for sticking with us. And if you didn't stick with us, you're not hearing this appreciation anyway. <laughs> But we're hopeful. So, this has been the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Ross. And I'm Gordon. And we'll speak to you again real soon.